Siam Nostalgia Children's Setting Sons Productions uh, Podcast Hour. Uh, today we're here with uh, uh, respected Fisher Dana Wilson, Lummi Nation, and respected UW professor in uh, geology David Montgomery. Uh, David uh, was kind enough uh, to spend some time with us today. He was off at Lummi Island this uh, past uh, evening uh, talking about uh, some of his work as an author. He's uh, not only a college professor, he writes books. And uh, an important book to us in the work that we do is uh, a book he wrote like 15 years ago. It's called King of Fish. And it, uh, it brings forth the thousand year run of the salmon. And as we know, salmon's really important to our people, the Lummi people, Coast Salish people, as well as uh, indigenous uh, uh, nations around the country and perhaps around the world where uh, their livelihood, their identity is very much tied to salmon. So David, uh, maybe you can introduce the King of Salmon, what motivated you in writing the book and its place <clears throat> amongst the conversation today with uh, things that need to be done to restore uh, uh, habitat to uh, to put uh, salmon in its in its rightful place, as the as as we think of it, as Lummi is uh, kind of like the miner's canary to you know the environment and what's going on with uh, with river and river restoration. So. Yeah, you know the I think that analogy of salmon as a canary in the environmental coal mine for the Northwest is a really good one. Um, they're not only sort of an integrative icon culturally in the Northwest. They were really critical ecologically in the Northwest. If it, they, if you look at the nutritional uh, dent, uh, um, availability in rivers and streams of the Northwest, they're pretty depauperate. The salmon who were you know, born in their streams went out to graze in the great grocery store of the ocean to put on most of their biomass. When they brought that biomass, that nitrogen, back onto land, it actually helped fertilize the land. And that nitrogen ended up in, you know, in trees, other organisms. Um, some of the grizzly bears in Idaho that, whose hides have been analyzed, 90% of their nitrogen came from the ocean that they never saw. They got it by eating the salmon that brought it up the river to them. So they're integral to the ecology of the Northwest, integral to the, the human ecology of the Northwest. Um, and I got involved in salmon um, in kind of an uh, unlikely way. I'm a geologist by training, and so I studied um, how landscapes evolve, what shapes rivers, what shapes mountains. And I got hired out of grad school at the University of Washington to, to move up to Seattle and study the way that human activities that affected rivers and streams in turn affected the salmon. And I worked on that for most of the 1990s, um, uh, a lot of it funded by the state of Washington to try and look at answers for that as part of some of their environmental and political programs. Um, and King of Fish was the result of sort of a decade of working in that arena and coming to realize, well, first, how fascinating salmon are, how critical they are to the environment of the Northwest, but also what the ties between the way people have changed the land and the landscape and how it works, how that has influenced salmon runs, not only in the Northwest, but also in, um, in, in Scotland, the home of my ancestors, in uh, New England, in California. And um, King of Fish is really a story of how salmon management has um, degraded salmon runs over many years 
in the Western world, and some of the contrasts with the long-term stability of salmon runs um, in regions where they were managed by Native people who had, you know, thousands of years of a track record of sustaining their salmon runs. That sort of contrast is one of the, the sort of the inherent themes that's in the book. Um, but it's told through the eyes of a geologist and how the way people change and shape landscapes with this overlay of fish management on top of it. Um, and it, it was fascinating for me to, to research and, and learn that stuff because when I was sitting on a panel in the late 1990s um, for the state of Washington to try and evaluate the state's salmon recovery plans, one of the questions I asked the governor's office was, you know, what lessons have been learned from the kind of salmon uh, management um, problems that there were back in New England or in, in, in England and Europe before that? And the response was, was sort of like, wait, there were salmon in New England? It's like, who knew? Um, and yet when you go back and read some of the early accounts, it kind of sounds like the Northwest. Um, but we've lost the cultural memory of how abundant those salmon runs were. I mean, there, and there's salmon laws in Scotland going back to, you know, a thousand years. And that's the title of the book, The Thousand Year Run of Salmon. I sort of went back to look, followed my own sort of ancestry back to look at salmon management in Scotland. And there were laws a thousand years ago that said that if salmon made it back to their spawning grounds, you had to leave them alone. Um, there were laws that basically said that uh, you could not block a river or stream in a way that would prevent a fish from either a juvenile fish from going to the ocean or the adult fish from getting back to their spawning grounds. You know, and why were these laws in place with, with severe penalties that weren't always imposed, but were at least were on the books? It was because people understood the life history and cycle of the salmon, and that if you didn't allow the juvenile fish to go to the ocean and get big and come back and spawn, you wouldn't have any more salmon. And, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever been to Scotland, but there's not a whole lot to eat in that landscape other than salmon and, and now sheep, um, naturally. And so it was a really critical resource for supporting subsistence people in that region for thousands of years. Um, what went wrong? That's a lot of what the story I tell in King of Fish, because what you see is a story that repeats itself, whether in Scotland or England or New England or California, and we're partway through that story in the Northwest. And it resolves around essentially forgetting the natural history wisdom that went into traditional salmon management, um, such that we started blocking rivers and streams. Um, building and, you know, The Industrial Revolution really did a number on England and New England salmon because lots of small dams went in that had no fish passage, and gradually 90% of the river miles in England and New England that once had been accessible to a salmon were no longer accessible. And if we look, if we play this sort of forward in terms of the, the kind of impacts, in terms of habitat degradation or hydro, the, the so-called four H's of hatcheries, hydro, habitat, and harvest, um, the harvest H overfishing was a big problem in in, in England and New England, and in this region early in Western management. Um, the, the hydro H in terms of dams, that's really what really did in a lot of the salmon runs in England and New England. And we, there's issues in the Northwest as well with that. Um, the habitat loss one, we've lost something like 90% of the salmon habitat that we can document was in the major river floodplains around Puget Sound, circa 1870, 1880. It no longer exists. It's not wet. It's not submerged. And if, you know, as a geologist, if there's one thing I know about fish is that they need water. You drain their habitat, it's no longer salmon habitat. 
And we've done a pretty good job of reducing the total amount of salmon habitat around Puget Sound. And it's no coincidence, I think, that we've lost something like 90% of our salmon runs around Puget Sound when we've lost about 90% of the major fish-producing habitat in the Big River floodplains. Um, so those are the kind of issues that got me involved with, with writing King of Fish and researching it so that I could actually um, advise on issues of salmon recovery in the Northwest um, when I was serving on those committees. But intellectually, I was really captivated by the idea that the way that people change the landscape can actually cause the landscape to evolve right out from under a species like the salmon that were well adapted to the landscape. You look at, at, at sort of the natural landscape of the Pacific Northwest, it's not a safe place to be a fish. Look at what happened to the, on the Toodle River when Mount St. Helens erupted. You know, the river wasn't buried under mud and incinerated. We get big floods and storms you know, frequently. You know, ice ages come and go. Yet salmon persisted here for millions of years. We have examples of sockeye salmon fossils down on the Olympic Peninsula that we know are a million years old. And sockeye are the most recently evolved species of the Pacific salmon. And they evolved right along with the topography of the Northwest. Um, but they were able to survive in this dangerous environment for millions of years, in part because of their life history of spending you know, a few years at sea. They always have a reser genetic reserve out in the ocean in case a volcano erupts. You get a, you get a drought. You get a big storm. A, a log jam blocks your natal stream. There's a resilience to their life history that we've managed to really undercut with the way we've managed them and the way that we've changed the landscape for the last 100, 150 years. So it's a long answer to your question, but um, now I've forgotten what the question was, so I'll, I'll, I'll tee, tee up another one maybe. Well, it was, yeah, th thanks, David. That was, that was an introduction to uh, the uh, book uh, King of Fish. Maybe uh, Dana, you can kind of introduce uh, yourself and the Lummi people's uh, relationship with salmon to kind of like, tie together what David's talking about this. There's a long history, there's a long uh, relationship that's been there thousands of years. And not only have the salmon survived, but we've survived too. And then we're facing another uh, period of time here where the salmon are just about uh, gone, you know? And what are, how are we thinking about that? And what are the things that we need to do to, um, to bring them back? Uh, good morning, my name's Dana Wilson. Well, I, I think with the Lummi people and coastal people of, that rely on salmon is that it's been such a way of life for them that it, it's, it's, and without the salmon, you know, they're, they're losing, you're, you're losing some well-being and you're, you're in, and not being balanced. You look back at all some of our songs and dances and stuff like that are all revolve around salmon. You know, we have a first salmon ceremony. We have a ceremony for the first salmon that comes back every year. And the last couple of years I've been thinking about that first salmon ceremony and how that the people probably 200 years ago maybe it was about the ceremony was about giving thanks just because you know they didn't have to really want 
that salmon. They just had to give thanks because it was there. Nowadays, where when we do our salmon ceremony, we're praying that the salmon comes back. Mm. Yeah. And you know, it, so it's it's flipped. Before it was given thanks. Now we're hoping and praying that the salmon will return. And that's you know, and I hear that in through this this ceremony, and, and I didn't think about it until mm. last year. I was thinking that's not the way it used to be. Yeah. So, you know, I'm a lifelong commercial fisherman and tribal fisherman. Been fishing for probably 40, 45 years and, and seen a lot of changes in, in this industry. Last year, I didn't fish at all because the salmon didn't return sockeye. There was no sockeye. I fished a little bit of chums in the fall. But that wasn't on, on a, a run coming back to Washington State. It was on a run that was going back to the Fraser River. So I just worried about, what I really worried about is what, what are we going to give and what are, we gonna, what, what, what are we leaving for our future generation, younger fishermen, so they can, they keep, can keep this way of life going in, in which the Lummi people or coastal people have been living this same lifestyle probably forever since salmon and people have been around. We've been living the same lifestyle of the cycle of the salmon. And we're forgetting how to live that lifestyle because the salmon isn't there. So, th so we're out of balance, just like the salmon are. So it's, in my mind, it's a rough time for the future of our, the younger fishermen. That's why I'd like to be involved in, in trying to figure out how we're going to bring some of these salmons back, whether it's hatchery, then working on habitat. But there has to be something in place because I, I think that people forget, even in, in in, in our community, how things are and, and being balanced. Hmm. And it's all about salmon, it is, because that's who we are. So if you, if you lose that balance of no salmon and no habitat, we as the Lummi people are out of balance. So that's, you know, that's a way of thinking that I have is that yeah, I, you know, as a, as a growing up and <coughs> is that you probably had salmon on the table twice a week. Mm. So that, you know, now it's not, you know, I have, I have to go to Fred Meyer's to buy mm. salmon that comes out of Alaska. I mean, because it's not there. And the question I'd like to ask you is that as a professor, this road that we're going down, how much time do we have left unless we start doing something now? Hmm. Yeah, well, 
short answer in my view is now this now is the time to start doing something. And it's, it's one of the reasons I wrote King of Fish is that I sort of recognize that in the Northwest, we're partway through repeating a story that hasn't ended well in other regions. And we still have time. We're not down to the last one or two percent of salmon. Um, and it may sound may not sound that optimistic to say, well, at least we still have 10%. But if you look at New England, you look at England, they're down well less than that. Um, and we still have opportunities to actually restore some habitat in this region. There's, there's things we could do. And one of the things that um, I've been involved with recently was try, is an effort to try and rethink the conceptual foundation for salmon management and ask the question of, well, if we were to design a system of salmon management that could sustain fishable, you know, large fishable, commercially fishable runs of salmon well into the future, what would it look like? And, you know, the problems that we have with contemporary salmon management are that if we're fishing out in the, in the open ocean, we're taking fish that we're not necessarily able to track what run fish we're catching are from. Um, and if you look at so what would make for, and we're, we're over-harvesting some runs, and we have definitely over-harvested in the past, and we're using gear that's not selective. So we're catching all kinds of different fish and different runs mingled in a broad sense of salmon management. And if you looked at the kind of style of, of salmon management that matches what we now understand about salmon ecology, we would be catching fish much closer to their natal rivers. So we kind of know which river the run we're fishing is from. We would be using gear that was selective for individual um, species. We would then, we would also, um, we would also have an escapement that's at least 50% of a run. We'd basically have at least half of a run that's not cat, not harvested. Because if you look at the basic reproductive biology of salmon, they'll produce, you know, um, four to five, four to six returning adults per spawning pair. And if there's the habitat available to them, they can reseed that new habitat. What that means is that you can actually harvest up to half of them and maintain the run. Um, and if you look at the style of what that would look like in terms of a style of salmon management, it looks an awful lot like pre-contact Native American salmon management. Um, River-specific gear tailored to not have a lot of bycatch. And you mentioned the salmon ceremony. It was an integral part of essentially letting number of fish go by before anyone would start taking them. There was, there was restraint in terms of the numbers that were taken. And on the Columbia River, for example, I think the estimates are something like 10 or 20% of the run was harvested. What that means is that 80 or 90% of the run was not. Um, you could harvest up to half and still maintain a run. Um, and when we look at early Western management of salmon in in the West and in these other regions where it failed, there were runs that were fished 90, 90 plus percent a year. You look at what happened to the Chinook on the Columbia. They just, we just kept catching, you know, 90% or more of them year after year until they disappeared. Um, so there's a number of us who feel that the conceptual foundation for salmon management needs to be rethought and re-engineered in a way that would look a lot more like pre-contact Native American salmon management. Um, just based on what we now know about salmon ecology. So we, in other words, we've been going down the wrong road intellectually and as a conceptual foundation as to how we manage salmon. And that's without even talking about hatcheries. Um, this is sort of just in our basic philosophy of where we're catching fish, how we're catching them, and how many we actually catch. Mm -hmm. um, and th those kind of things are um, 
you know, obviously out of the realm of geology, but uh, working with fish biologists for the last 20 years on these issues, that's, I've really come to think that that, the need for a new conceptual foundation is um, central to the idea that of what, if we'll be able to restore large runs of commercially fishable salmon around Puget Sound. And I think it's a perfectly feasible thing to do. We have you know, the big river valleys where the fish factories that had a lot of habitat. We can restore, there's an awful lot of potentially restorable habitat in those areas if we really put our mind to it. Um, but you know, we'll never get back to what was here probably circa, you know, circa Lewis and Clark. But I think we could do a lot better than we are now. Thinking long term, if you're at 10%, you want to get back to 20%. That'd be a in, doubling. In our right? generation and then <laughs> leave that for the next generation. But maybe, um, maybe what I can have you do, David, is read uh, excerpts from your book a little bit and we can key in another part of the conversation. In the last chapter, the sixth H and the five H's are, uh, if you can reiterate that, then explain what the sixth H's and uh, maybe read a passage uh, that we have sure. identified I mean, for you. I mean, uh, part of the book is structured around the, the so-called four H's of, that have contributed to salmon declines, which are uh, harvest or overfishing, uh, habitat loss, um, hydropower or dam construction that blocked the ability of salmon to go up and down rivers, and then also hatcheries, which have impacted wild salmon. Um, so there's so four H's of impact. And at the start of the book, I lay out the idea that, well, there's actually a fifth H, and that fifth H is history. And if we don't learn from the history of mistakes in salmon management that have been, have been made and written about and surprisingly well-documented, if not learned from, um, that's sort of the, the structure of the book, is to look back at that history. Um, and at the end of the book, I sort of ask the question, well, okay, well, what will the next H be, the, the sixth H? And um, if I recall, uh, I ended the book with it's going to be a choice of either hubris or humility. And the hubris of thinking we can basically know better and continue doing the same things that have failed in other regions. If we keep doing that, that is hubris. And the humility would be the humility to basically realize that maybe we've been going about it wrong. We need to rethink how we're doing things, and we need to restructure the way that we're um, impacting habitat. We need to turn the sign on impact from habitat destruction to, re to habitat restoration. We need to give different runs that need it a break and a chance to rebuild. And we need to rethink the way that we're running hatcheries at a large scale. Um, so hubris or humility is the choice. Uh, Before you get to that, then I'll ask Dana after, after you read that, we can get back to that hubris or humility and what, uh, what you're hearing from the folks that are uh, trying to resolve the culvert case are they being humble about that or are they are they trying to you know fight it off as just uh, where the change change the argument so where the tribe really even doesn't have a right to co-manage you know I don't know maybe you can summarize that for us because I as I understand it the Supreme Court is now going to hear the culprit case because the state oh. does not want to own up to their responsibility and so that's it's hubris, I would think, you know. Uh, but let's get to that after you, after you read this excerpt. We can okay. go back to the, maybe talk about the culvert case. All right, so this is in, in the last chapter, the sixth age. Salmon are amazing. Just a few feet long, they travel thousands of miles to complete their life cycle. They can, re they can repopulate streams devastated by volcanic eruptions. Given half a chance, they can take care of their own existence quite well and expand to fill the available habitat. 
But for a century and a half, we have sustained a pace of landscape-scale changes that salmon have never experienced before, except over short time periods and across limited portions of their range. By disturbing everything everywhere all at once, we risk leaving them no sanctuary from which to repopulate depleted rivers and streams. It is unlikely that we will drive salmon from the face of the earth in my lifetime, at least not until Alaska and Siberia followed the progression of events that over the centuries transformed the rest of salmon country. The real issue is how far we will push salmon toward that end and how many more extinctions of local populations will be allowed in the meantime. If we can't afford healthy rivers and streams to protect our salmon, then who in the world can? I believe that most people do want salmon in our rivers. Most people tend to want to do the right thing by salmon and are willing to make some sacrifices to prevent the degradation of our environment. But modern salmon management is plagued by short-term thinking that prioritizes vested interests over public interests in setting public policy. This creates the problem that our social and political institutions can lead to outcomes quite different from those which most people desire. <coughs> salmon are like a natural bank account. Generations of Native Americans and Scots lived off the interest from their accounts. Industrialization of fisheries and transformation of the landscape has eaten deeply into the principle and depleted our account. As with any bank account, the way to build the balance is to preserve the principle and reinvest the interest. Unlike the current management system, where fishing intensity rises in good years instead of allowing greater escapement and thus larger spawning runs, Keeping our salmon accounts solvent over the long run will require returning to the proven practice of only withdrawing the interest. We borrow salmon from future generations. If it's wrong to destroy something borrowed from a friend, a car, a guitar, or whatever, is it not just as wrong to destroy salmon that we borrow from the future? Failure to see the inevitable is a definition of delusion. Sadly, this has been the defining characteristic of salmon management since King George polished off the Thames River salmon. In the end, the resurre resurrection or destruction of salmon will come down to moral and ethical issues, to value choices that society can make explicitly or continue to make implicitly. Do we want salmon in our rivers? Are we willing to drive species knowingly to extinction, even if only by looking the other way? The solution is not really all that mysterious. We simply cannot keep doing things the way we have been doing them, or we risk losing the salmon. The choice is ours. The future is not. The sixth H in the salmon story also is ours to choose. Will it be hubris or humility? No wonder why they got mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> so what, do you, what, what David's talking about then, Dana, uh, you fit the culvert case within that. And How long has that been around, and when did the tribes decide <coughs> to file that, and it's how long has it been in process, and has the state really stepped up and owned it, you know, or are they still defending that method of habitat restoration? It's kind of, you know, obvious to me that, you know, with that amount of damages being done and then us revealing all of those damages that somebody would step forward and say, yeah, we're going to take responsibility. But instead, they're trying to fight it off legally, you know. So. Well, I, I think that the Colbert case is, uh, there's a phase two of the Bolt decision. And I think that's all part of the phase two of the Bolt decision is that I, that we're guaranteed 50% 50, 50 of the run. But 
50% of nothing is still nothing. So, you know, and that's where that people have to realize now that the state of Washington is always going to defend expansion before I think they're going to look at because people get voted in the office and they start something, and, you know. But habitat cost a lot of money to restore habitat. And I don't think the state of Washington is really <coughs> looking to, um, they're hoping that it's just going to, they're trying to buy time is what I, the way I look at it, instead of really putting everything towards habitat and salmon. You know, it's always there, but nobody's doing anything. But that's where the tribes can step in and, and, and really force the issue, because we're the only ones that can. So in, in, and we have to keep pushing them to do the right thing in honor not only the treaty, but the salmon. And in the state of Washington, that, that's why people move to the state of Washington, is because of, in my mind, it's the last of the frontier. Of, it's the last place you're going to get, in their mind, salmon, but the salmon aren't here either. But there's this... Uh, I think we live in a fantasy world that this is still, it's still perfect here, mm. but it's not. The salmon aren't here, but people think they are. Mm. We keep advertising like, <coughs> you know, you, you look at sporting goods stores and marine stores, is they're still advertising like there's still a lot of fish to catch, but there isn't, a lot, there isn't very many fish to catch, but we're really putting the pressure on because we're not managing the way we should be as far as what we got left. There, there is, it, you got, okay, let's take the Nooksack River. Some of that, those kings are under, they're, they're under the Endangered Species Act. They're, 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 they're there. But those fish go all the way from the Nooksack River, go up into the Gulf of Alaska, yeah. and then start coming back. <coughs> so they're targeted there in Alaska, then targeted in Canada, targeted in the ocean, Pacific Ocean, then back up through the Straits of Juan de Fuca. How many of those fish do you think are going to come back? It's like you said before, is that, but how do you get everybody on the same page to save that one run, or save that river? Because everybody says they, they have a right to that fish. But who really, who... And then when we come in, we're, we're at the end of that whole 
trail. So who, ha who suffers? You know, as, as Lummies, we haven't fished on that run in 45 years. So we're giving up everything we're doing to save that salmon, but the rest of Alaska, Canada, even the state of Washington gets to take their turn into the fish, but where we give up <coughs> our right to fish that salmon to try to protect it. And that's what people have to do. That people, you know, people, we're going to have to make some sacrifices unless we come up with some other solutions. It's, it's complicated. Yeah. And that's where this flawed conceptual foundation for salmon management really runs into well, both politics and, and other problems where if you look at the place where you could most rationally manage a salmon run sustainably, it's at what you're saying, sort of the last stop on that chain of fishing back near the natal river where you know those fish are from that run and you could manage it such that you can try and grow it rather than depress it. If you're just catching them in the open ocean in Alaska, you have no idea what river they're from. Um, and so it, the way that we have set up salmon management engineers structural problems like that into it, it makes it difficult to actually conserve salmon. And if you look at sort of a global perspective of, you know, the, where are the world's food resources? Um, salmon rank up there as one of the most absolutely incredible food resources humanity has ever been given. Um, they're, you know, wild salmon are incredibly nutritious. They're an incredible um, source of health for people. They're a run that basically we don't have to care and feed. They do that themselves, and they do it in the marine environment. Mm -hmm while not only enhancing the habitat and the environment of the rivers and streams they make it back to, um, but providing a resource for us to consume that we can, if we can just manage to eat half of it, we can perpetuate that into the future. Um, and, you know, what's the value of a resource that keeps bringing value on its own effort to people and can do it in perpetuity? You know, anything that could be sustained over the long run is literally invaluable. You can't put a price on it because if you play that out over the generations of the future, you know, it just skyrockets. And if you're willing to think very long term, you know, it is literally irreplaceable and invaluable. It makes no sense to manage them in a way that makes it hard to conserve them. And yet that's the system that we have set up tonight. So a question to both of you then, as we, we talk about this, about values and about uh, long-term, are groups starting to talk that way in terms of getting together and creating a common vision? Uh, uh, you know, the tribes, state, commercial fishermen, sports fishermen, U.S., Canada, is, is, there, is there a group active in, in trying to lay this out and figure out how we could make sacrifices together and collaborate and move forward before we start uh, getting our hands on whatever it is that we're after, um, I, I hear uh, I hear about the conflicts. You mm -hmm. know, I hear about the Wild Salmon Alliance and opposing hatcheries and you know, and putting a target on tribes. You know, and that's that's divisive, and we're probably not going to get too close to working together. You know, but 
than Canada, U.S., and the, the conflicts there that are inherent to international relations, kind of that's a wall right away, you know, and we're not really getting together. So is there, uh, talking about how to change, um, you know, there's certain things that are not going to change, you know. I think if there was never a treaty, if there was never um, court decisions and legal rights defined by um, all of these uh, national, regional institutions, I kind of think that tribes would go fishing anyway, you know, and um, practice those family laws. So that's kind of like a given, you know, and there's also the things that we talk about, salmon are resilient, they're, they're hopefully always going to be coming back, you know, and I put my money on that idea more than anything else, you know. So you have those two constants, there's probably a third in that there's inevitable development. It's always going to happen, you know, and I don't know how many millions of people live in the state of Washington, but it was, you know, far more than anybody can even imagine, you know, 100 years ago. So, but, you know, we got to lay that out for ourselves. What is our, what is our vision, our common vision, and how do we get to the next, um, you know, level of human development so we can have <laughs> yeah. uh, something we all cherish, you know, which is salmon. Yeah. I mean, one of the big problems historically has been th with the multiplicity of impacts on the salmon, it's been easy for different interests to say, well, we're not doing it, you're doing it, and you're doing it. That, you know, that's the history of salmon management, not just in the Northwest, but in other regions as well, is just rife with that being a real political problem for actually getting to the point that you're calling for, which is a unified vision of where do we want to be. And I think it's the right perspective to try and pursue would be to and what has been lacking and what was what was sorely lacking in some and still is lacking in the state salmon recovery planning efforts are what's the vision for the year 2100 do we want there to still be 10 percent of the historical runs around peter center do we want it up to 20 percent or are we willing to let it go down to five you know what is the vision uh what's the target and then if we had a target um in the positive sense of the term we could start to define what it would take to get there. How much habitat do we have to restore? How many culverts do we have to pull out? Um, and you could actually have a plan to move forward in a way that might respect things like, you know, the state's budget, if they don't think they can afford all the culverts, culverts all at once. Well, what about putting them on a culvert diet to actually get to the point where eventually all that habitat's reopened? Um, and the disappointing thing from my perspective in looking at the state's uh, fighting of the, the culvert case is that if you look at, if you read the original treaties and you read it in context of the times, the very idea that salmon runs could be depressed to, this, to the level that they are now was something that was literally unimaginable to everyone involved in signing that treaty, both sides of it. It was just, no one could imagine the magnitude of landscape change that's happened since then. And I don't think it's a credible argument to think that the... the um, um, the indigenous people who negotiated those treaties as duplicitously as the negotiations were carried out, if you actually sort of read the transcripts and how it went down, um, they never would have agreed to that had they imagined that there would be no salmon. Because half of nothing, yes, it's nothing. Who in their right mind would agree to that if they thought that was a possibility? The idea of agreeing to share the salmon 50% with, with newcomers to the region you know, that actually seemed apparently like a, an okay thing. There were lots of salmon to be had. Um, 
I just don't see how anyone could imagine that the intent of that would be honored by splitting half and nothing. It just makes absolutely no sense to me. Um, and I would like to see more leadership at the state level to basically go, okay, how can we honor not only the, the, the letter but the intent of those uh, treaties, and how could we restore larger commercially viable runs of salmon for all citizens of the state? Um, and that's where having that vision of where do we want to be in 2100 um, would really be valuable. Um, and it would be most valuable if it was achievable. So sort of a, a sober, hard-nosed assessment of where, what, can, what can we get to? And I would love to see a lot of effort, go, a lot more effort go into trying to define that than is going into the continued arguments over who's going to end up with the short stick. I'd rather there be a bigger stick well, all around. Well, I, I belong on the uh, Whatcom County Fishermen's Association. We have these discussions about <coughs> hatcheries and how, how we're going to get to to a way to fish without, you know, there's so many laws you got that you got the Endangered Species Act, you can't do this to the river, you can't. So, so there's a lot of, you have a lot of um, stumbling blocks in place that's, that are keeping you from doing some things. So we've been talking about looking at Southeast Alaska and how they're doing their hatcheries there. and, and and theirs, their hatcheries are on, instead of upriver, they're more at the mouth of the rivers or mouth of the streams, where, where they're that leaving that upper river for natural stocks yeah. to go. And you keep your hatcheries down at the mouth of the river and in the mouth of the streams. And, and I, I think that's something that the state of Washington, the tribes are really going to have to look at and really, because it, it's working there. Yeah, that, I mean, that would take the sort of the freshwater habitat competition part out of the equation. Mm -hmm. And that's a big piece of the hatchery impact on wild runs. So, I mean, that's if you're going to have hatcheries, running them that way is a better way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they say it's, I don't know what the hatchery, um, the percentage of, of fish returning but they say it's about 10% more, or 5, five or 10% more doing it that way than having the hatcheries upriver. So it's actually, you're getting a better return. They're all around. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's the discussion that people are really going to have to have is that, can we do it this way? And shall we start looking at changing the way we're, we're doing hatcheries? And, and we also need to look at changing the way we're doing development. I mean, there was a study a few years back that looked at, you know, how much it would cost to the average uh, new house in King, King County, I think it was, uh, to basically um, build such that it wouldn't really affect stormwater peaks. And I did a study back well, in the late 1990s with an undergrad at UW looking at as, as, creeks, as the watersheds of creeks urbanized around Seattle, what happened to the fish runs. And basically what happened is that as the percent of urban in the watershed went up. So the amount of, of concrete and impervious surface, so rain would just run off right into a stream instead of sinking into the groundwater, led to higher flows in the streams. And the flows that used to be 
you know, sort of a 10-year flood. We're starting to become an annual or two-year flood. So we're getting bigger peak flows in the little streams. What happened? Well, the species that had their eggs in the gravel in the fall and winter, like salmon, got scoured out. Species that had their eggs in the streams in the spring, like trout, took over. Because, you know, when do we get our rain? We get it in the fall and winter. So if you urbanize the landscape and you change the hydrology of the rivers and streams, you turn them from salmon streams into trout streams. And so this is an undergrad thesis. It was, it was a so, really solid, good piece of work, but it wasn't that complicated. You just had to go look at the data on what happened to the stream flows, what happened to the fish uh, surveys, put the two together, get, get the hydrologist and the biology, you know, into the same project we could rethink how we develop. And this study from King County a few years back, I think it said that it would cost about an additional $5,000 or so to the price of the average house that was being constructed in King County to build it in a way that it wouldn't aggravate that problem. So you'd have you know, rain cisterns and your impervious driveways so that the rain would sink into the groundwater where it would actually support summer low flows instead of running off in peak flows that would scour out fish eggs. So uh, that was deemed to be too expensive to think about. You know, developers are up in arms. Um, you know, how could we possibly add more to the cost of a house? Well, you look at the cost of a house in King County today, $5,000. I mean, I hate to say it, it's a lot of money, right? But it's a drop in the bucket compared to the cost of a house in King County. So it really brings the question home of how much are we willing to pay to still have salmon here? And you if you're dealing with... You've got to trade the gold-plated toilet for... <laughs> Salmon restoration, you'll be um, fine. Yeah, or you know the, you know you look at say the thirty year loan on a house, and five thousand dollars averaged over thirty years that you're paying off. I mean, it's not that you know it's probably a couple bucks a month, um, and as a proportion, you know the average house price in King County is what probably over half a million dollars. Is probably pushing seven hundred now, would be my guess, or it's at least probably half a million. Right. 5000 to 500000 1%. 1% of the cost of a house. Um, so it's those kind of questions of, you know, how we develop, how we live on the land, how we build our infrastructure, where we put our hatcheries. That's a really good point. Um, those are the kind of things we ought to be thinking about and trying to get creative on because and the point I tried to make in the last chapter of King of Fish is that we're, we've got to think that way because... If we want to have a landscape that has a lot of fish in it and being produced on it, we've got to figure out how to accommodate a lot of people and a lot of fish. Mm. And that means we have to live on the land a little differently. doesn't mean we have to go back to not having electricity and cars and so forth, right? But, but it does mean we need to think about the, how we build, where we build, uh, whether we build on the floodplains where it's expensive to maintain infrastructure. We keep rebuilding roads and rebuilding bridges in the same places. Um, because they are at risk. There also happen to be places that if we manage them right, could produce a lot of fish. So why not make money out of areas and get value out of them than sinking money into them? Um, anyway, that's... Yeah, all, all those <coughs> possible solutions and visions and things that we're talking about coming together to figure this out, it all kind of doesn't... Uh, um, have the greatest amount of meaning until you have a hammer or something over the top of ours, us to make sure that we do what we say we're going to do and follow the laws that have been written and ensure that uh, things that are being done are, are fully implemented, you know, and 
Is there any thoughts on that? Because we have, we, tribes got treaties, you know, and that I read so often in, in the different literature that, you know, that's probably our, probably our biggest hammer right now, or at least uh, the one that it's, it's the thing that is, it's the uh, document that's acknowledged by everybody is that we got to re recognize tribes and treaties and the supreme law of the land. But even that, you know, that gets us, uh, like Dana's saying, half of nothing. You know? Yeah. So there's got. How, how? What's the enforcement mechanism? Well, I think the treaty is the only thing that's going to save the salmon. I really do. I because I know that I have a lot of friends in the in the commercial fishing industry, that, and that's what they say. If it wasn't for the the treaty and the tribes, we'd be gone. Everything would be. So you guys are our last hope. That's what they always say. So that's, I've heard an elder say this from somewhere, is that, that um, if anything is going to get done, it's going it's to get done by the tribes. And I believe that. So we have to, you know, we have to step up and educate other people you know, other entities and other people that, hey, we're here for the good of the salmon. Everybody come together and let's work this out. And I think that's how it's going to have to have to play out. Because no matter what, we're, we're going to have to be on board. We're, 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 we're the, I think we're the real drivers, but we're going to have to, like Daryl said, is that we're going to have to get together with the sports community. <coughs> Everybody get on the same page and say, how are we going to do this? You know, we're going to have to sit around over a cup of coffee. We don't have to sit around with lawyers. We don't have to sit around, you know, sit around and just talk about how we're going to do this. Yeah. And I think that's the way it has to play out. Or we're going to keep pointing the fingers at each other and blaming each other. Yep, I think define, defining that vision for where we want the region to get to is a really big first step on that. And... I mean, I think, I think it's going to take coordinated effort by the tribes. I also think it's going to take education and political effort and will outside of the tribes to basically support that. Um, and I think, I think there's very few people in the Northwest that if you ask them whether they would be okay with salmon being extinct in Washington in 2100, no one's going to embrace that as a vision. And I think it's a very low risk that we would get to that point, but we could lose a lot more rivers. We could lose a lot more runs along the way. And you know, trying to define where that vision is could be difficult, but I don't think it would be one of continued degradation. And yet when you look at the salmon recovery plans that we've had in place now for about 20 years, the, the logical result or the logical way to look at them is that they're plans to manage the decline. There's nothing on the table yet to turn it around into an increase in wild salmon. And yet, if there's one thing I'm certain of, it's that rebuilding wild salmon populations require us to change the sign of the rate of change. We gotta go from loss to gain. So how do we do that, should be the question. How do we do it over the next five years, next 10 years, next 100 years, should be the question. What's the plan, what's the vision? And it's gonna require sacrifices sort of across the table of whoever's at it. Um, but I think people, when they share a common vision towards a goal they embrace, 
are willing to make sacrifices. They're just not willing to be the only person making the sacrifice. And that's what's really undercut a lot of salmon management, in my view, for a thousand years, is that we've been pointing at each other in terms of who's to really blame, when the reality is it's a little bit of all of us. And so how are we going to turn it around? So I well, embrace I your idea you, of getting you, the vision you, down. You look at yesterday and you watch the news and they're, they're putting in legislation to, to, to do a hatchery for, to save the whale, to save the killer whales. Oh, yeah. For salmon. Yeah. They, want to, they want to grow some salmon. An orca feeding yeah. hatchery. Yeah. So, and how, you, you got to get around. I mean, it is, it's not only us that is dying. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's an indicator right there yeah. that something is haywire. Yep. So, If, yeah. if killer whales start ended up on the beaches dead because they're starving, it's too late. Yeah. So it, we have to do something now, I think. Yeah. And I, you know, in, in the short term, it's hatcheries. I, I hate to say it, but it's, it, it, it is hatcheries because that's the short term. And long term is, is fixing our natural stock. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's kind of like you could view hatcheries as methadone for a heroin addict. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's 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 a it's a part, it's a partway point towards a solution, but it's not the solution. Well, you, everybody, it, it's it's where we're at. I just hate to say it. Yeah. It's 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 where we're at. And you know, you look at Alaska. People don't realize that over a third of the salmon in Alaska are hatchery salmon. Everybody thinks hatchery or Alaska is just every river is pristine, but a third of that is hatchery. Yeah. If not more. So you know they're doing something right up there, and I think we have to look at it and and change the way we're doing hatcheries down here because it doesn't work. We've been doing them for. You know, there's experiments around the world that have been done where there are successes in salmon management, whether from the fishing pressure management, from the hatchery angle, like you're talking about, um, the. <coughs> And we really ought to be looking at what are the commonalities of those experiments that have worked pretty well, and then trying to draw the lessons from that to, to try and figure out well, if we can define this vision. How do we get there? We should look back at that fifth age, that history age, and kind of go, well, what worked? You know, what has a track record? Because yep. continuing to do the same things with the idea that maybe this time it'll work, yeah, that's Einstein's definition of insanity, if I recall right. Um, and yeah, that's, that's why I lost most of my state funding after writing King of Fish, is saying stuff like that. <laughs> well, thanks, Dana, David, for the uh, good words that you brought out today and the call for unity, call for vision, uh, and commitment to the long term for salmon. This is Children of the Setting Sun Productions podcast signing off, and we'd sure like to have this conversation again soon. <laughs>